turn your Bibles <coughs> Colossians. And this morning we're going to change gears as we move into a brief season of apologetics. And although there are a few more messages, I believe, that I will share with us in regards to sonship, um, I feel that I have exhausted the current or present burden that God has placed upon me in regards to that subject. And as I've been preparing for the upcoming evangelistic meetings at Brother Josh's, my mind has become very geared towards evangelism and apologetics. So we'll read two portions of Scripture here this morning. And, you know, for me, apologetics is, it is profitable, necessary, that we might exhort and convince the gainsayers and contend for the faith. But for me, apologetics is substance for faith and worship. Because it exalts and magnifies the glorious, sovereign God who is, as we will see this morning, the grounding and the precondition for all of life. Reading in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Oh, a short verse, but so profound. Paul says, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now turn back to Romans chapter 1. <coughs> Romans chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. And here's where we will focus in. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Notice that phrase, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Father, we do come. Before your throne this morning, we look unto you, Father. We ask that you would quicken us yes. by your spirit, Lord, according to your person, according to your ways. You would lead us and guide us and establish us in thy truth. We might know you and worship you. And we might be true and faithful witnesses. Christ. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the universal plea of God to men 
is found in Isaiah where God says, come and let us reason. Thus, Christianity is supremely rational. In fact, God himself is the foundation and the grounding for rationality itself. Thus, the faith can be defended in a rational manner. And that's what apologetics is. You know, many, if not most people, falsely assume that Christianity is somehow anti-scientific or anti-rational. And thus, you'll hear people make this statement. Well, you seem to be a very religious man. What are they implying? That they are a rational man. You know, I had a conversation with a young man named Harry many years ago at LSU. And Harry, he sent me an email and said, before we start this, this interaction here, I have a question for you. What I want to know is, are you a rational man? Well, he said, go back to Harry. He said, Harry, I have a question for you. You are a materialist here. You just believe in matter and motion. What immaterial, objective, universal, binding standard of rationality are you going to appeal to to uh, determine that? Uh, you see? Perhaps some will ask, how do you reconcile faith and reason? And I just tell them, you never have to reconcile. <coughs> For what could be more reasonable than to put faith in an all-wise, right. all-powerful, and all-loving being? You see, in reality, it is the naturalistic, atheistic, evolutionary worldview which is not merely unscientific, but anti-scientific and utterly irrational. And that is what we will see here this morning. But before we move into our message, I want to give you two definitions. The first being transcendent. Transcendent means that which is other or beyond. That which exists apart from and is not subject to the limitations of the material universe. The other word is preconditioned. A precondition is a condition or state that must exist before other things can happen or be rendered intelligible. Now, we're all breathing this morning. But if I were to ask you, what are the preconditions which allow us to breathe this morning? Yeah, maybe I'll talk about the preconditions of electricity. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Okay, amen. We'll just carry on here. So what would be the preconditions for us to bring? What would have to be true about reality? Would any of you offer any preconditions? What must exist? Oxygen. oxygen. If oxygen did not exist, then it would not be intelligible that we are breathing. Perhaps some of you have heard of the Kalam cosmological argument. Have any of you ever heard of that? 
Remember that argument you had? Amen. Basically, what I am doing this morning is I am presuppositionalizing, if that's a word, the Kalam cosmological argument for God. And having said that, this is what our thesis will be this morning. Here it is. God himself, who is a transcendent being, is the necessary precondition for the intelligibility of all things. And that is what is taught in the scriptures that we read this morning. The scripture in Romans chapter 1, it brings out this truth. Paul says, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead. Oh, what a scripture. In other words, Paul is telling us that the creation or the heavens declare the glory of God. And Paul is telling us that through a human encountering the visible creation, the invisible things or the transcendent and eternal attributes of God are revealed to that human so clearly that the Bible says man is without excuse. In other words, everything, everything that we encounter in the natural realm is evidence of something that is transcendent or beyond the natural realm. The verse from Colossians sets forth this truth as well. And really what I'm doing is I am grounding presuppositional apologetics in the Scriptures. This is what the Scriptures teach. It says in Colossians 1 and 17, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. You see, in this passage in Colossians, all things, amen, and we're not presuppositional Calvinists, are we? All things refer to the entirety of the created realm. And Paul tells us that God's existence is prior to and foundational to all created things. Thus, it is by God's nature and power that all things are grounded and <coughs> sustained. In other words, God himself is the necessary precondition for the existence, intelligibility, and the continuance of all things in the created world. That is the essence of the presuppositional argument, and it is clearly taught in Scripture. But perhaps you may ask, well, Brother Charlie, that's, that's all nice, your you know, little philosophical argument that you've set forth this morning, but how do we practically apply it? You go out to the college campus and you put your sandwich board on and you start to prove or you start to preach and by and by, a student is going to walk by and he's going to look at you and say, prove. Has that ever happened to anybody? Have you ever heard those words right there? 
Prove God. Now, first of all, according to our text in Romans, God's existence is self-evident to all men. Therefore, here's the question. How much evidence is needed to give to a man to prove to him the existence of the God who said no more evidence is needed? None. You see that? So, we don't have to prove That's right. God. All men are painfully aware right. of the existence of God. And in fact, here's the beauty of the presuppositional argument. You don't have to prove God. You just let them seek to justify and make intelligible the created realm without God. And they will prove the necessity of God. Perhaps you can ask them, what proof would you accept? Most of them hadn't even thought about that. You could also ask them this. If I did prove God to you according to your criteria, would you bow to him right now and worship him? And most, if they were honest, would say no. Because it's not really an aspect. The problem is not proving God intellectually. All men know God exists. They just hate him. That's and right. don't want to be morally accountable. Perhaps you can ask him to prove proofs. <laughs> because the proof of the existence of God, or one of them, is that if God did not exist, you couldn't prove anything. But having said all of that, this is what we must understand. In essence, when the unbeliever says, prove God, they want an empirical or a scientific proof. Something they can. But the Bible tells us that we are not to answer the fool according to his folly. Now, what if I were to sit down here with Brother Timothy? Brother Timothy invited me over for some snake bite chili. Well, good weather for some snake bite chili. And as I was eating my chili, Brother Timothy offered me some crackers. Well, I thought it would be a good time to let Timothy know that I am an egg crackerist. <laughs> that I don't believe in crackers. He said, well, I've got something right here for you. Suppose I were to say to Timothy, well, I'll believe in crackers if you can put one on my tongue, a saltine cracker, such that it gives me a sweet sensation. Now, with that criteria, could Timothy ever prove the existence of said salty? No, not at all. Do you see what's going on here? Let me ask you a question. Could you weigh a chicken with a measuring tape? No. You stock still boys and all use a metal detector. You know what that is? You see those metal detectors? Perhaps your, your daddy bought you one. Let me ask you a question. Would it be possible for you to use that metal detector and detect a plastic McDonald's straw that somebody may have dropped back in the 1900s? Would that be possible? Not at all. What do we have here? We have a category. That's right. Uh -huh. You see that? Now, we're dealing this morning with the proof of God's existence. And what we must understand is this. The way we prove something depends upon the nature of what 
we are seeking. Brother Timothy told me he went to the Piggly Wiggly in the grocery store the other day to buy some orange juice. And how much did that orange juice cost? Six dollars. Let's do that. Now, what have I told Timothy? That's outrageous. The Bible team would never make such impression upon us. And Timothy said, No, it is true, sadly. No, I don't believe that. Well, there's a way that we can solve. Go to Walmart and look at the price tag and solve it. But when you're dealing with the existence of God, you're not dealing with something that is proximate, but with something that is ultimate. You see, and this is very important here <coughs> God is just as real as the orange juice. In fact, more real. But God is transcendent right. to the natural realm. In other words, he's invisible. But praise God, the invisible things of God are clearly seen in the creation. You see, God is a transcendent being. And here is a Transcendent being can only be proven using a transcendental proof. Amen. You may not understand that, but just trust me. It took me a long time to put that down. You see, presuppositional apologetics uses a transcendental proof. For you presuppy junkies, it's called tag. The transcendental argument for God. And the transcendental proof is a very legitimate proof. In fact, it is a superior and irrefutable proof. But a transcendental proof is not a direct proof. It is rather an indirect proof. Let me show you how. You see, a transcendental proof does not say, look at this and see that the Christian worldview is true. But rather, transcendental proof asks the question, look at this and then consider what would have to be the case regarding the nature of reality in order to make sense out of this and everything else we see and know and do. You know what? What if I told you that, you know, under this saying, there is a very sound and elaborate support can you see that? Even, even underneath this church, there, there's a, a very good support structure underneath this church, but that's invisible to our naked eye. So how can I demonstrate the proof of that? Well, I, I can start jumping up and down. I can even get no Jordy. Amen. And, and some of you to come up in here, and we can jump up and down. And the transcendental will argue, well, I can't see any support structure, but in order to make it intelligible that I'm able to jump up and down, right. there must be something beyond, right. foundational, underneath this, which although we cannot see it, it is necessary. Right. You see that? Thus, God is what we would call a necessary being. He is the being or the cause that cannot not be. 
So as humans, we are a part of the created world. And we are conscious of the world around us. Amen. And what do we experience and observe as creatures? Well, it says in Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, what a statement. This verse speaks of what is called the time, space, matter continuum. But time, space, and matter had both a beginning and Perhaps I can ask you this morning. Was there ever a time that there was no time? What would you say to that, Stephen? Huh? No? I would say that there was. Amen. The first 48 hours before Genesis 3, when God created all the plants and the herbs, there was a time that there was no parsley, sage, rosemary, or thyme. And in fact, you may not have been here for this, but Brother Charlie once went back in time. Amen. I, I sprinkled some time in my head and walked backwards. Oh, what a miracle that was. So yes, technically, without using equivocation, there was no time that there... Oh, there... Yes. Exactly. There's not a time that there was no time. But nevertheless, time, space, and matter had a beginning, and had a cause. Now, as Christians, we know the universe had a beginning, as it says in Genesis 1 and 1, and it is even a consensus among scientists that the universe had a beginning. What would be the problem in saying the universe is eternal? There's two, at least two. Number one, if the universe is eternal, and, and, and history is infinite that way, then if it's infinite, then you could never get to this point in time. Secondly, if the universe was eternal, then according to the second law of thermodynamics, the universe would be running out of energy. If you had a flashlight and you left it on all night, through the night, it would decrease in power. And if you left it on for just a few days, it would no longer have any power. Likewise, if the universe were eternal, then there would be no more energy. There would be no more heat. Everything would have run down. So therefore, even scientists will admit that the universe had a beginning. Now, another law of science is what is called the law of causality or the law of cause and effect. Who knows what that law says? Now, Bertrand Russell read something by a man named John Stuart Mill. I can't believe that these so brilliant men can be so stupid. <laughs> he said the law of cause and effect says this, that everything must have a cause. And if everything must have a cause, then if God exists, then he must have a cause. But the law of cause and effect is not that everything must have a cause, but every effect must have. And for somebody to say, what caused God, that would be like asking what caused the uncaused causes. It's kind of like asking what shape is purple or what does seven sound like. Do you, do you see that? 
The law of causality states every effect must have a cause, but the law of causality also declares that the effect cannot be greater than the cause. Very important. Now, to deny the law of causality is to deny rationality. So if ever, ever anybody tells you that they don't believe in the law of causality, you just need to ask them one question. What caused you to come to that conclusion? <laughs> now, we're presently living in the universe of the natural world. And the natural world, as we have seen, is not eternal. It had a beginning. Therefore, it had a cause. <coughs> and since the cause must be greater than the effect, the whole of the natural world could not have been caused by something that is natural. But rather, it must have been caused by something greater, beyond, outside, something transcendent to the natural world. Thus, it follows, the natural world must have been caused by something supernatural. That's it. Wow, that's good. You see, the natural realm presupposes the supernatural. Moreover, the natural world, according to Genesis 1.1, is comprised of time, space, and matter. And according to the law of cause and effect, there must be a supernatural or transcendent cause for the elements which comprise reality, time, space, and matter. Therefore, are you ready for this? The cause of time, space, and matter <coughs> must be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. You see, cause must be greater. So whatever caused time must be beyond time. Amen. Maybe we could call that infinite or eternal. Amen. Whatever caused space must not be bound by space. And whatever caused matter must be so do you see that? Just by simple rationality, the cause of time, space, and matter is timeless, spaceless, and matter. An eternal, infinite spirit. So simple, but so <clears throat> profound. Furthermore, by observing the creation, what other attributes must the first cause possess? If this world is caused by something, then all the facts and the beings of this world are dependent. Thus, there must be something which is non-dependent and possesses absolute being. What do we call that attribute? Anybody know? We call it sanity. In order for there to be continual being, there must be absolute you see, old Descartes, he made the statement, I think, therefore, I am. You know what God says? I am, therefore, am. You see, apart from there being a being that possesses being in and of himself, there could be nothing. Moreover, this infinite, eternal, supernatural spirit being which possesses a satiety must also be personal because it must possess a mind and a will in order to choose 
to cause the natural realm. The law of inertia, what does that say? An object will remain at rest unless an external force acts. So you consider, what if you granted the atheist, you know, all of his ingredients, amen, the, the singularity, all the laws, chance, time. What if you granted him all of that and it all exists there in awaiting the creation of man? If it wasn't personal, it could never choose. It'd be like a man sitting over a golf ball. Everything's teed up. <clears throat> you see, apart from there being a personal cause, the ball could have never gotten That's why the Bible says, in him we live and move. <laughs> Think about that. You see, God is the unmoved mover that got this whole thing in motion. Oh, it's so simple, but it's so profound. Moreover, as humans, we have personality, which presupposes a personal cause. We are rational beings, and rationality does not come from us. Again, the cause is the blood of Christ. Our mind does not come from mud. Our consciousness does not and cannot come from chemicals. You see, what are we doing? We're just, we're just looking at the natural creator realm and extrapolating what must be the case in reality just to make sense of everything we all know and take for granted. The universe is also very fine-tuned. I mean... All of these constants. The gravitational constant, for example, has been set very precisely. In fact, some of these atheistic scientists, they say a simple intellect has monkeyed with the physics of the universe. And just to give you an idea of how exact the fine-tuning of the universe is, if you could take a tape measure and stretch it out across the universe, not even a walking, but if on that tape measure that long, if you could mark where gravity must be, if it was off an inch in either direction, the universe could not This kind of spaceless, immaterial, personal first cause that possesses a sanity must also be very intelligent as well. There is also, amen. The fact, in case you haven't noticed, the universe is a very big place. Perhaps the biggest. <laughs> Therefore, this being must be very powerful. And also, within the creation, and this is something we don't have time to get into, and I don't profess to even fully understand this, but we have both diversity and unity. So that which is the precondition must both be diverse and unified as well. Thus, the triune Christian God. You see, the ultimate cause of this universe must possess a nature which is sufficient to be the necessary 
and sufficient, uncaused cause and sustainer of all things to make all of these qualities intelligent. I would propose to you this morning that the infinite, eternal, rational, personal, powerful, triune God who has revealed himself in Scripture is the only transcendental possibility. Now, you know, you hear the, the unbeliever. Well, I mean, this, this isn't fair. I mean, you just get to put God as the answer for everything. I mean, it's almost too good to be true. Look, you know what he's saying? He's saying this is really very obvious. Somebody's coming here. I mean, what do you think? What else could explain it? Exactly what I'm doing because he is the answer. But you know what they'll say? Okay, yeah. You're using God. But if you will just give me enough time, then I will figure out the cause of all. Now, Sister Brenda is a very But you could give Sister Brenda a million years. And she could never discover that she gave birth to her own brother. Isn't that right? <laughs> no matter how much time you give her, it is a logical and natural impossibility. Likewise. You see, God's not running for God. God's the only being that can meet the criteria in order to be the transcendental precondition for the intelligibility of all. That's why Christianity is proven by the impossibility of the contrary. There is no other explanation. And if you try to set one forth, you're going to make a fool out of yourself. You see, logic is like an intellectual policeman. It can't tell us how the universe began, but it can tell us how it did not begin. You see that? And logically, there cannot be a natural and impersonal, non-eternal cause for the universe. Everything. You see, this is what's so beautiful about presuppositional apologetics. You don't have to just have a, a, a positive, a chariot wheel. Amen. You know what's proof for God? That's right. Everything is proof. That is what it is. You can't explain anything apart. Even to doubt God must exist. Because if God didn't exist, you couldn't even have a rational mind by which to compare options and even doubt his existence. Everything. Is proof for God. Think about rationality itself. Men reject God because they declare there's no rational proof of his existence. Yet that declaration is utterly irrational because apart from being created by a rational being who is the grounding of rationality itself, there's no rational reason to trust in our rationality which would tell us there's no rational proof Come on. for God. You see that? God <coughs> is the necessary precondition for rationality. In fact, the only way that somebody could know that God did not exist 
How could you? The only way somebody could know that the Bible was not true is if the Bible was true. The only way somebody could know that evolution were true is if creation were true. Therefore, evolution can't be true. In other words, what I'm telling you, God is the creation for all us. And anybody that wants to have all that Abraham can do to it's the smartest thing they can do. Because when they begin to open up their mouth and try to set forth a rational argument against God, they're presupposing God. All right. You see, the only way for a human to possess knowledge is if God exists. Because the only way that we could know anything is if we were either omniscient or had a revelation from somebody who is, which is our So here's the proof. If knowledge is possible, then God exists. Knowledge is possible. Therefore, God must exist. What about proof? The very challenge of the unbeliever presupposes God. The Bible says all men have knowledge of God, and they suppress it, but every now and then they'll let out, they'll have a, a little uh, atheistic slip there, and they'll say, Prove God! The only way that I could prove anything is if I had the law of the Lord, is if I had knowledge, if nature was uniform. Those are the preconditions to prove anything. So the proof for God is that if God did not exist, you couldn't prove anything. Laws of logic, what are they? They are immaterial, universal, and they're unchanging. If the universe was just made out of matter, matter in motion, how could you have something that was immaterial and never changed? Because it's grounded in the mind of a being who is immaterial, unchanging, and universal. What about rights? Oh, there's so much pleading for rights today. But rights are self-evident because we are created in the image of God. You see, rights presuppose God. <laughs> rights are not something that the government is to recognize, but the government is to recognize and <laughs> So when you go out there, Black Lives Matter! Well, if there is no God, it's not BLM, it's MLM. If there is no God, no lie. Yeah. That's right. What about my rights? They're aware of their rights. Well, they're perverting that. But hey, if rights exist, then God exists. Rights do exist. Therefore, God exists. We could go on and on and on. Talking about information. Talking about laws. Talking about morality. What about evil? <coughs> What about it? The only way you can know that a stick is crooked is if you have revelation of what a straight stick looks like. Amen. You know, and you notice, they don't say that things are different. They say they're evil. Why is that? Because they have the suppressed knowledge of a standard of good. 
That's right. You see, the only way you can have shadows is if there was somebody. The only way you can have evil is if there is a standard. That's right. That's right. If you get a cut on your finger, amen. If you took away the finger from that cut, there would be no more cut. Isn't that right? Amen. Good. You can take the rust out of your car, but if you took the car out of your rust, you wouldn't have a car anymore. Uh-huh. You see that? That's evil can only exist because God. It's, evil is one of the greatest proofs of God's existence. Yes, sir. You see, so what have we done this morning? We have simply applied Romans 1 and 20 and Colossians 1 and 17. We're merely taking an honest look at the world. And considering the things of everyday life, asking the question, what would have to be true about reality in order to provide the precondition for all of this? And the atheist can seek to attack and accuse. But in order for him to do that, he must first set forth a worldview which can provide preconditions for the intelligibility of life, yea, even his own accusation against God. So as I close, we all know that all men have I just lack positive belief in God. <laughs> no, 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 Mr. You may not be aware of it, but you have a worldview just like I have a worldview. You have a view of reality, knowledge, behavior, beauty, and so forth. But here is the view. Only the Christian God, the triune, eternal, personal, rational, Christian God, provides for those things that we all take for granted. You think about reality. What's the grounding of reality? The great I am. What about knowledge? What's the grounding for for knowledge? Well, he who is is also he who knows. What about ethics? He who is and he who knows is also he who is and he who is and he who knows and he who is holy is also all together God. you see that? It's so glorious. It's so beautiful. Only the triune, eternal, infinite, holy, and rational Christian God that has revealed himself in the scriptures can provide the precondition the intelligibility of all of life. Hallelujah. Let's stand here. Really, when you deal with the atheist, you know what his substitute is for God? Anything but God. As long as it's not God, amen, we can put it as the explanation. As one honest atheist said, I choose to believe what I know is impossible because I know 
use to believe. <coughs> Why is that? You see, this is what the atheist believes. He thinks that he can, you know, do away with Jesus. All that I can do away with that. I can crucify him. I can keep my intellect. I can keep my logic. I don't need Jesus to have all of this. And if you do away with Jesus, then you have embraced. And that's what we are beholding on the college campus when you deal with the man. Amen. If you want that man to come all you can do is set before him his two choices. Either Jesus Christ or And although we may not be able to prove God to him with our proofs, we can demonstrate to all men that no one rejects God on rational grounds. As Paul said, where is the wise man? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Hallelujah. Hope this has been a blessing to you. I know that you may feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> I may have cooked your noodle here this morning. Feel free to come. Talk to me about this. I didn't just, you know, put this together yesterday. I've been cooking this down for over 20 years. But basically, is first to know that, to believe the Bible, but then to be able to fluidly, as you're talking with somebody, recognize how, as they argue against God, they are presupposing God. <coughs> they're trespassers and they're presuppositional kleptomaniacs. And what you need to tell them is, sir, you either need to stop stealing and stop trespassing or you need to get saved. Because everything you're doing and everything you're saying as you attack God demands the existence of God. Right, right, right. If a man must presuppose that which he is arguing against to argue against it, then it lights out daylight. Right. There it is. The presuppositional argument. <coughs> Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Lord, for who you are. Lord, we do rejoice in you. We thank you for the knowledge of your person, of your ways. We thank you, Lord God, for that spirit of wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of you. Pray that you would establish us therein. You would grant us wisdom, Father, faithfully apply this truth. Ask it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Praise God. Take a short breath.